Hello and welcome to this very special podcast. Gillian Hills, A Life in Art, Film and Music are the recollections of Gillian Hills accompanied by autobiographical excerpts from her latest album, Lily, which was inspired by her life between the ages of 11 and 19. Gillian Hills was born in Cairo on the 5th of June 1944 and is an English actress, illustrator and singer. She was discovered in France at the age of 14 by the legendary film director and screenwriter Roger Vadim, who is the director of And God Created Woman and Barbarella. He hailed her as the next Bridget Bardot and cast her in his version of Les Liaisons Dangereuses. Gillian became a 60s film icon, appearing in movies like Beat Girl, her first English film at just 15. Gillian played other key film roles in the classics Blow Up and Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. Gillian went on to record for the French Barclay label between 1960 and 1964, and one more for AZ Records in 1965. She moved to New York in the 70s to work as a book and magazine illustrator. In 2012, Gillian's song Zubi Zubi Zoo was chosen for the premiere of the fifth season of the hit American TV series Mad Men, and more recently her music was featured in the number one Netflix series The Queen's Gambit. Excerpts from her album Lily with producer Peter Vitesi are featured in the series. Gillian, welcome to the podcast. It's lovely to have you with me. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, listen, you have been an actress, a poet, an artist, a singer, songwriter, and you have had a fascinating life. And I know much of your album Lily is inspired by your life. So I'd love to talk about that in conjunction with your work. Mm -hmm. Let's start when you were 14, when something very significant happened, didn't it? Yes, I think it was, for me, it was a shock. It's even difficult for me to talk about it, but to simplify, I was on my way to school and just before closing the door, there was um, a film director called Vadim and he was saying on the radio, "I'm, I'm looking for a girl, the youngest is 14, she mustn't be younger than that. And anybody who's interested, could they please send me a photograph? And I, in my stupidity, uh, made a joke. As I was closing the door, I said to mother, I'll send a photograph. And the thing is, I only had one photograph from that summer. It was a young Italian boy who had been very, very polite. He came up to me on the beach. I was with my best friend. And he said to me, would it be okay if I took a photograph of you with me and I could then show it to my friends in Italy and say you are my girlfriend it's so <laughs> sweet you know okay if, if that helps you absolutely oh it's so obliging of you <laughs> yes so he sent me um I gave him my address and he sent it back the interesting thing is I don't know if he ever knew who I would become he sent me the photograph it was a very polite young boy and then at that time, around about end of September, it was the weekend, my mother would go to walk on the front you know, of the sea, seaside, and um, she went and she would buy a newspaper. And as I was standing apart from her, because you don't always want to be with your mother, you think that you look absolute <laughs> fool. So there I was being very independent. And uh, I, I sensed something, like somebody looking at me. And I looked up, and he was a very tall man. I recognised him. He was a, an actor called Christian Marcon. He happened to be the best friend of Vadim. And he was staring intently, actually practically through me, you know. And I smiled, which I never do, because you 
sort of like in France, the sort of thing where guys pick you up. It was still very Italian then. Mm. So um, he suddenly moved forward and he said, I have a friend and he's looking for a young uh, girl for a film. Would you be interested? And my mother's ears heard that. So she came rushing and uh, she said, yes, 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 we're very interested. He said, well, uh, I'll give you an address and you send a photograph. So mother had a friend who was taking photographs on the promenade because the people didn't usually have cameras. So he took a photograph, which was actually not that good at all. I couldn't recognize it, not that I was attractive. The way he posed me was very odd. You were you know, very my, beautiful. <laughs> my hand under my chin, my, my other hand in a funny position. I don't think he had a clue. But anyway, I thought it was a joke, really, frankly. I thought she wouldn't go through with it, but she did. And then she said, well, we have to write a letter. And I knew that her French was okay, but she couldn't spell, you know, French. Right. And I was very embarrassed. And I was very innocent, naive, because actually you can send a photograph in and nobody looks at it. It goes straight to the bin. So anyway, mother said to Christian, well, we've sent a photograph. And he said, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to Vadim and he's going to be in contact with you. Now, we didn't have a telephone, so we gave the address and he sent a telegram. And on the telegram was the phone number and what time. And I picked up the phone and I asked for him and he came on the phone. And he said to me, OK, I would like you to take a train. We'll send you two tickets and it's going to be for tomorrow night. And I said... I can't come tomorrow night because I got my exams the next day. And these are very important for me. And we started a sort of a to and fro. And he was insisting that it had to be that. And my mother, who was slightly unusual as a character, started screaming in the post office really loud. And everybody looked at me because, you see, the younger one is always the child and the child is always wrong. And they were frowning and so... I suddenly thought, oh, I'm going to give in. I, I just can't stand was it. Was she screaming so said, because she wanted you to do it? Is that why she yes, was screaming? Yes, right. she wanted me to go to Paris. Wow. She understood what was happening. Well, it's a big deal. So she was excited, I suppose. Yeah. Well, it wasn't that she was excited. She was horrified by me. Oh. She was horrified <laughs> right. that I was behaving in such a way. But I understood the value of education much more than being in a film. And, of course, I just thought it was not quite serious. So he said, well, I'll send you two tickets. In the end, I caved in. And we got two tickets and it was probably the end of September. And I had a skin that was very uh, sensitive. I, it was perfect in, in the warm weather, the sunshine. But the moment that left, I got some spots. And I knew that fresh air was the solution. So all the way on the train, it was a cabin of four. And I decided to go right on the top and I opened the the window a little bit and all the way I didn't sleep I put my nose out of the window so I was sure my skin would be okay this is dedication <laughs> I'm impressed and I didn't even know fresh air was meant to be good for spots oh no no it is it's very <laughs> okay it's very good for spots it dries them up so I arrived in Paris and I can't remember exactly what happened but I know that it was a, a 
person who looked like Vadim, because I knew what Vadim looked like then in the end, but who was not Vadim. He was actually Christian Marcon's brother, Serge Marcon. He was the best friend and very, very lovely, very um, kind person. He took me to the hotel and uh, he said, well, tomorrow morning, I'm going to go to the studio and um, you'll get your lines on the way in the car. So I said, yes, 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 you know, to everything. And on the way in the car, I read the script. It was only about four pages and I was a very quick learner. But I understood that she was very much like me. And so it would have been, I, you see, I didn't want to lie. I came from various convents. That was my life because uh, my parents were in different places and I was um, with my grandma at some point and then I was put in convents, you know. So so convent boarding school, was it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I had quite a few and I was really, um, they were awful places, you know. The, 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 the secret, if you go to a place like that is, you never, ever speak. They find you boring and nobody's going to attack you. But the last one was, was, was a bit dire because there were some mad women, you know, and uh, they, they end up there. They believe in the end of the world and things like that. And it's very frightening for, for when you're, well, six or seven and things like that. You know, you do believe in these things. But anyway, I learned my lines and I got to the studio and I was absolutely fascinated. They were very, very sweet with me. Um... The makeup person, uh, she did my skin and she wanted to put some black on my eyes. And I said, no, I look terrible with makeup. (laughs) I seemed to know what I wanted. Good for you. So, um, and I was thinking, God, I hope I remember my my lines, you know. And um, they put me in a suit, which was a one-piece black dancing suit, which means that meant that they could see your body. And I had no shoes on. And we walked along this... There were huge halls. I was fascinated because the doors were enormous. And my favourite was Alice in Wonderland. And I thought, oh, I'm in, I'm in Wonderland. And I was told green is to go and red is not to go in. And my mother was there, you see. So red came on. I went in. Of course, everybody's staring at me and there are lots of cables. And they say, be careful with the cables because you could fall. And go towards the light, towards the light, nowhere else. So I went there and I stood and I noticed that people were looking at me, looking at me up and down. And already at the makeup room, she said to me, don't worry, don't worry. You've got the part anyway, so don't be frightened. So I thought, oh, I know what that is about. (laughs) So anyway, I went there and Vadim was there. I had actually met him the day before and I forgot to say that because he was very sweet I had a raspberry coloured, it was a, a duffel coat, which was a very pretty little duffel coat. And then I was dressed sort of like really like winter because it was freezing cold. It was November and I wasn't used to it and I could hardly talk. And I remember he treated me very beautifully because he tried to talk to me. And I never, I wasn't really, I was whispering back, you see. So he said to me, would you like a sweetie? Uh-huh. And I looked up because I wasn't looking at him. I was too shy. <laughs> and when I looked up and he gave me the sweetie, the ice was broken and he was able to talk to me. So he realized who I was when I went into the studio the next day. And so he said to me, you sit there and I'm going to sit on a little stool in front of you and I'm going to ask you some questions. It's the first time in my life 
that I was ever spoken to as a person. Mm-hmm. Not like you're traveling here and there and your parents are here and there. And, and in a way, your life is not your life. He spoke to me like a grown-up. And I lit up and I knew that mother was very close behind him. But I began to forget her. And he was wonderful. He was kind. He asked me important questions. One of the questions which floored me was, have you ever been in love? Oh. And uh, that was, I thought, very personal. And I couldn't say anything. So I did something. I looked let's say, on my right, and rolled my eyes up to the ceiling and looked back at him. And that was my clue to, I can't say anything. (laughs) Because, (laughs) and I, really, I had fallen in love when I was, oh, 12. And they were wonderful. They'd come just back from Mm -hmm. Vietnam. And they had seen terrible, terrible, terrible things, you know. I mean, indescribable cruelty to women and this young boy I fell in love with was desperate to go to war and I didn't say anything but I was desperate for him not to go to war they were very grown up for their age um, so anyway Vadim um, he said um, I want you to uh, lie sideways and we're going to put a branch in your hair because I had very very long hair and I realized that he was making a painting of me, that there was a very well-known French artist I knew, and her name was Leonor Fini, and she was a surrealist artist. And she had a painting in which the girl is, is on a branch and her hair is in, entwined in the twigs. So I knew already who Dadim was. And so when I came back later, clothed as the young girl with her dress on and my hair up, etc. And I knew my lines. Mm-hmm. He was giving me back his lines. Right. And I didn't feel so uncomfortable. I missed one line, something. And he said to me, oh, uh, and he re- repeated something. He said, oh, he asked me the right question. And instead of acting or anything... I answered properly, which was, oh, God, I'm so sorry. Yes, that's absolutely true. I forgot to tell you. And I started a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so he was um, he was reassured. And I remember going back to see the test. And it was, at that time in Paris, there was an enormous amount of cars. It was, a bit, mm-hmm. it was around 5.30. And they sent a message saying I got the part, but they wanted me to see myself on screen. And we arrived just around two or three minutes before the end, so I, I, I really couldn't see much. But all I could hear was the peals of laughter, and that's because at the end of the test, I was so relieved that I began to do somersaults. And <laughs> Wow. <laughs> That's impressive. And I, was laughing. I know. And I was laughing my head off and said, oh, thank God, thank God. And everybody was laughing. And that's what I saw. You were so young starting all this, weren't you? I mean, can we move a little bit to, to your music that you've done recently? Because I know a lot of it was inspired from that period. Is the song Nefertiti, does this play into this sort of era or was that from when you were a little bit younger? It begins when I'm 11. So that's before I was called Lily. And there was this gentleman who visited Mother every day and he bought an ice cream. 
And one day, before he left, he sat down next to me and he said, you know, I'm going to bring my camera tomorrow and then the day after tomorrow I leave to go back to the UK. But I'm going to give you this photograph and I want to tell you that when you grow up, you're going to be very beautiful. You have a very long neck. And do you know there was a queen in Egypt and she was called Nefertiti? So that stuck in my mind. Well, let's have a listen then. This is Nefertiti. Oh, me with my Buddha knees. Oh, me with my Buddha knees. You're the berry whip to my cone of cream. You're the trip from which I should flee. On the throne of your feet Let me lay my neck My titty of diamonds Your sword so sharp Cuts at the nape of my heart Cuts at the nape of my heart Cuts the nape of my Well, talking of you as a young girl, um, now, last night I watched one of your first films, Beat Girl, the 1960 film, mm. which uh, the BFI um, fairly recently remastered, considered yeah. to be a bit of a classic. Um, very fascinating film, entertaining, very sort of evocative of a time. And of course, co-starring Adam Faith, uh, a young Oliver Reed and Christopher Lee. Yes. Tell me about your memories of filming that. And what were you, 15 when you did that? Because you played 16, didn't you? How old were you? I was thought, uh, I was, let me think, let me think. Yes, I was, I received the script in April and I was still 14. And I was desperate to make it because um, I wasn't, I was this good girl, very quiet. I was very careful with my mother. I, you know, I was, was not just the convent girl. I just knew that I had to be very, very, very calm and everything. And I had a seven-year contract, which was very important, with the film muscle. And to be able to do Big Girl, I had to break my contract. And the contract was renewable every year, depending if they liked me or not. And when I read it, I was desperate to express myself. I was desperate because I felt I was Jennifer. There was no difference between me and her at all. And because I was a teenager and I was going through a certain time in my life and I'd been trundled here and there and I'd always been very quiet, nobody could read my expression. The only one who ever asked me anything was Vadim, you know, who I was and everything, that's all. So I was desperate to make the film because I realised that I would be able to express angst, my, my, my worry, my my emotions, which were spilling over. And I remember it was September, and a year ago, literally, I had been expelled from school. And I was in the UK just then, and I was filming. And suddenly, it occurred to me that I'd survived it. I was filming, and not only that, it was a film I'd actually wanted to do. I really wanted to do it because... I, this sweet, shy girl, had become Jennifer throughout all I had gone through. I was in secret. Jennifer. I was a rebel. But I couldn't express it. But with Jennifer, I could. And so I thought, 
that's probably the reason why I got the part because it's not me anymore. I'm not the girl I was. I'm this other one. I'm Jennifer. And the only one who knew it was me. And so I got the part because I wasn't playing. I remember seeing another girl because I was doing, it wasn't a read up, but it was sort of like we were filming. It was first me and then the other girl. And we looked completely different. She was very poised and she had dark hair. She looked 17. And I was very young. By then, I'd, well, I'd just turned six, 15, 15, yes. But I had this fury inside me. And I thought to myself, I ain't going to have it because I have to have it. It was not like having a cake. If I didn't do the film, I'd be desperate. So more therapy in a way. Um, yes, yes. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. Yes. So, I mean, obviously Jennifer is into the kind of music scene oh, and yes. kind of an underground yes. scene. Yes. Um, tell me what you enjoyed about filming those scenes in particular. Oh, all of it, all of it. <laughs> because I remember the, the film director, you know, he was a darling. I didn't know he, he came also from Nice, where I, mm. I was brought up. But it was not his music, you see. And with me... I wasn't allowed to go out at all. I wasn't dancing. I, had, I was still very, very quiet with mother, so she couldn't read my expression. And here on set was John Barry. He came to see Adam Faith, and the set was, went quiet. Filming stopped. And I, I remember thinking, well, I know that Adam Faith is a singer, but I'd never heard his work. I didn't know about John Barry, but I could see that they were deep in conversation. And everybody was very respectful. And it seemed to me that when John left, I thought, oh, you know, he's really, really attractive. Funnily enough, he was going to marry Jane Birkin later on. But there was something, something really passionate about him. And Adam, and I had never danced before the way I danced in the film because I just threw myself into it. I was so desperate. And I was, speak girl. I mean, I was Jennifer. I was rebellious, but I couldn't show it. And so when the music came on in Beat Girl and when I'm dancing, I had never danced like that before. I never danced. <laughs> I had, you know, I had danced in, uh, in Nice with a boy. Uh, I remember it was at the Everly Brothers. Not only did he step on my toes and he held me really tight, but he was dancing the tango. And I what, was to so, the Everly yes, Brothers? Yes, yeah. And I was saying, that's, that's so not bizarre. it, that's not it. Yeah. I said, this is the way you do it. And he wouldn't let me go. It was like a fight. And that was it, you know. So this was the first time, first time ever that I ever danced. So if you see me, I, I, may, be, I may look a little bit odd, you know, like waving my arms and this and that. I was moving and I was doing all the things that mother would have been, if she knew it was going to be that, she would have said, no, no, my, my daughter's not going to do that. But no, she wasn't told. And I was free as a bird. And I don't think I'd ever been happy like that for years. Yes. Wow. And what about Oliver Reed? Because I know he's just a small role, but you have a bit of a dance with him, don't you? There's some moments there. Yes. Oh, Oliver. What are your memories? Yes, Oliver had one thing extra, his eyes. Mm -hmm. They were, oh, I had never seen a blue like that. He had dark hair, these amazing blue eyes, and he was had this perfect English, you know. And he said to me, you know, I've only got the film because of Carol Reed. He's my uncle, and I want so much to act. So I got this part. And frankly, I looked at the script, and there was nothing really. There was just a scene in the car. 
And he made it. He made it into something. He made it into a part. And that's what I loved about Oliver Reed. He was absolutely, he was hungry. And he, he made the part. If you see him, he, in the car, he's always doing something. On the staircase, he's always doing something. He invents it. And that's what an actor is. You're so right. And um, of course, there's a, another very distinct arena that this film takes place in, and that's um, a strip club. Oh, um, oh, God, yes. Oh, <laughs> God, oh, God, oh, God. Well, that was George Willoughby, the producer. We all laughed because we were kids, you know, hmm. and we all thought he was hungry. We didn't know what home he came from. We didn't know if he was married. But we knew that he was never there except for the strip scenes. And I think <laughs> it's true. And the film never got out in France because they wouldn't allow the strip scenes. Really? Yes. And <sighs> he believed in, in that. We, we believed that he was just a naughty old man. And I remember I went to the Cannes Film Festival. I saw the girl. She sort of sways in the film. She's got the sort of bardo hair. And I mm -hmm. saw her on the promenade in Cannes and she was walking the same way. I thought it was invented. <laughs> it was her. Oh, that's actually how she walks. I know the one you mean. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's an amazing walk because it's sort of commented isn't on it? the film, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. And I think she was having an affair with the producer. So there he was. Oh, goodness. Uh, oh, well. <laughs> And um, looking back on it, I mean, from the sort of Time's Up Me Too side, it is quite, it does feel quite an interesting scenes that you have with Christopher Lee in particular, your character in that, in that film. Yes. Well, Christopher Lee came really as a star. He behaved like, well, I am a star. Nobody else was like that. <laughs> and uh, we were just sort of little piggy wiggies. And that was so <laughs> funny. And I remember when he put his hand on me, and I remember it was cold. So my expression, which is that of being slightly murky, it was because he was awfully cold fingered. I did not know about Dracula and all of that. I didn't know about Hammer films. He might not have really, in his heart of hearts, wanted to make the film. But he did. Maybe it was his agent or the money he was given, but he despised all of us. So he let him go. I'm there with him. I'm very polite. I'm the perfect convent girl again. But I thought there was something, I don't know, probably it was his cold hands. But I respected him because he was very professional. And I always respect professionals. I know they put everything in. Whatever they do, they would do it to the best of their ability. And that's how you go far, I guess. But I, I can't, it's very yes. appropriate that he has cold hands. That's, that's a, a, an amazing detail, as you say, with the horror films. It seems entirely appropriate. Um, yes. and, did, and did Beat Girl inspire you to get more into music yourself? Was that a turning point? Yes. Wonderful. I just knew. What happened was, in the film, there's a moment, it's a tiny moment when I go upstairs. And they, they asked me to sing a little tune. And I said, well, what do you want me to sing? And he, they said, well, um, one of them said, and he went on like that. And I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll do that. It wasn't really a song. They knew that. And so nobody was going to go after them. But what happened was I suddenly became aware that I wanted to sing. I was desperate to be able to sing. 
And so when I got back to France and I had this agent, he said to me, you know, nobody wants to work with you. He said, you're going to be fine at 17, but you're very young and maybe a little bit afraid, you know, what happened to Vadim and everything. So what would you like to do? And I immediately said, I want to sing. And that's how it began. So Gillian, tell me, what happened with Vadim and why did you get expelled? Before I returned to Nice, I was called in with mother to see the head of the film company. And uh, his name was Tenujin. He was really sweet, always. And he said to me um, that they managed to contact my father. And he gave full responsibility and power of attorney to my mother. Well, I have to say that it was the oddest of feelings. My parents went together, but I just knew that somewhere in the world, there was a person called my father and my father had dropped me and I I felt abandoned. So instead of having my father, which would have been a lot safer, his mother would have complete power over me. And we were told, don't mention anything when you go back to Nice, otherwise you will lose the part. It will take two weeks to confirm everything and then you will come back. Well, when I got back to school, I mean, uh, what was I going to do? Was I going to talk about it? Of course not. I would never say a word. Um, I just had an experience, an amazing experience. And I was convinced, absolutely convinced, there would be a change of mind. So five days later, I'm all over the newspapers. But I am not aware because we couldn't afford to buy newspapers. It was only, you know, one on Sunday for mother. So here I am, an innocent, walking to school, and I find at the entrance a load of photographers and a pack of girls. What on earth is happening? I'm thinking, is there an accident? The moment the photographers see me, they start clicking, and I'm confused because I was supposed to have two weeks, and then the penny drops. So I'm the last one to enter the school. There are lots of girls running around trying to look at my face. Between the classes is mayhem. On the marble staircase, they sound like galumping elephants. The teachers are screeching. They've lost control. After lunch at home, I'm asked to go to the head of the school. Um, She's really kind. And I can see in her eyes that she's sorry for me. And she tells me, that an army of mothers arrived and threatened to take their children out of school if she didn't remove me immediately. Now, she says, I have no choice but to ask you to leave. The thing is, I really started my education when I, when I was nine um, because my parents were always running around. So my life fell between the floorboards because I believed First of all, that no other school would ever take me and that I was finished. For me, education was everything Um, because my life had been so erratic. And I realized that without education, you couldn't defend yourself in life. If something happened, you were done for. So I wasn't sort of jumping with joy. I was in a hole. I was crestfallen. And when four o'clock comes, I'm so embarrassed. I gallop home, literally. And mother says, oh, she's very calm. She says, oh, you had a friend who came and then he had to leave. Well, I knew this was the boy I had loved. 
and still loved Andy probably came to say goodbye, and she must have told him to leave, as there was sure to be a lot of photographers. So the last thing I, I, I knew I would put in my little suitcase was a ladybird brooch he had given me, um, and I'd hidden, and it wasn't there. So I thought she never knew, but of course she did. I think she knew just about everything about me. There was nowhere to hide. So my life was going to be a new adventure, and I just have to look after myself, I guess. Gillian, thank you so much for sharing that story. Uh, it's powerful and it must have been very emotional for you. Let's now move on to talking about Botticelli Baby. Tell me the story behind this one. Botticelli Baby is really a totally autobiographical, but in another sense, it was the interior side of me that I, I hid even to myself. I was imprisoned, really. I didn't meet many people. I led an incredibly lonesome life. The only thing that got me through was the memory of this man. And that was uh, very comforting. Another comforting thing was it was my only secret that I had from my mother. She always looked through everything I had. Uh, She didn't have a life of her own, but also she wanted to keep me. And to keep me, she had to keep me solo. That means with nobody around. So I became like a recluse. So the song is about a girl who loses her love, but who gets it back at the very, 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 very end. Lily, Lily wants to play. Lily, Lily locked inside a cage. Botticelli baby. Gillian, I'm curious to know more about your early family life. Tell me more. My mother had got herself into a pickle. She always got herself into a pickle. And this time she did find a job on a beach. She wanted to be in Chouanet-Pin because all artists would land there. Louise Armstrong, Sidney Bechet, uh, Jules Greco, all very, very well-known artists. And my mother had been um, in the theatre. She had been an actress. She was still quite attractive. And I was told that she had a beautiful voice. I did hear her voice later. It was actually a soprano coloratura. It was a classic. And she sang on the radio because they didn't record very much then. And I only heard it because her mother had died and she she wanted to honour her mother. So she she tried singing a part to Madame Butterfly, but she'd had a very bad case of um, tuberculosis. And she was put in a famous sanatorium in Davos where Scott Fitzgerald put his wife, Zelda, 
And that's why he had all these short stories. In those days, short stories in America were paid a lot of money. And that's how he managed to actually pay for her sanatorium. My grandmother, she lost all her pension paying for mother because my mother had tuberculosis and I got it also. So I was in a convent opposite mother. I didn't know who she was, by the way, because I was told that I should uh, wave across the road and there was going to be some blankets. I should wave to some blankets. So I spent two years waving to blankets. But uh, it was very odd for me because when we arrived, it was summer and I came from Egypt where there was a muezzin. They, they sing. Nowadays it's recorded. But we were close to the desert and the man's voice starts at dawn and he sings five times a day. And it's beautiful. It's all in arabesques. And it sort of was my life in Cairo, but in a, in a, in a pram or in my bed. I was lulled. You know, then we went to Jerusalem. It was just to keep mother uh, from screaming. She was terrified of everything. And um, she went every day to the Virgin Mary's crypt, which is in a beautiful, small Greek Orthodox church. You go down some steps and her tomb is at the bottom. And I asked Stuart, because I was I had just met him, to please take some photographs. I had a candle in my hand. I was so excited because although I was not yet born, I was in my mother's stomach. So I was actually present. So my whole world, in a way, was music because I went from the Arabic music, to the nuns' music, which was church. Beautiful. Every morning you would hear these beautiful straight lines of girls that sounded like very young girls. It was, uh, for me, magical. I had a, an ear for music already. I was sent after two years to my grandma in England. To go there, I had to, first of all, meet somebody and then I used I had to go. That's what the nuns told me. And they took me across the road to see Mother. And I did not know she was my mother. I saw this fur coat and I thought she was, with her dark hair, white face and red lipstick, I thought it was a wolf. And I wasn't afraid of wolves, but I thought it was bizarre that I had to say goodbye to a wolf. Uh, I was three and a half and I had to look up at her there was a bright blue sky, so I couldn't see too well because the, 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 because of the light. It was a very bright light. And uh, she bent down and said something to me in a language I did not know. I was put on a train with a little cardboard with my name around my neck, and I was looked after by the train conductor. And I think they were quite used to these things, and they must have been. Because I arrived at, I think, Victoria Station or something, and I was picked up by somebody who happened to be my father. I didn't know it was him. And he took me to his to his mother. Even my father didn't know, well, he didn't know anything about Lishmian when he married her. And he married her just before the war to save her because he was a very, very strong, uh, adventurous young man. The war was about to open up. He had a an instinct which was that of a journalist and he was going to walk 
from Warsaw across to Romania. He had never spoken to mother for the months that they knew each other. I think it was about six months. He heard her on the radio. He could see her in the theatre, but they never spoke. It was all this, the sister spoke and she was very intelligent. And so that was his only conversation. But he, when he married her, because they said to him, please marry her, they had to marry in a, a Roman Catholic church. And he was Church of England, so for his family it was a disaster. You didn't do a thing like that. But um, she couldn't walk. She had tiny feet and they were slightly flat. And when you're walking on rocks and this and that, your feet start bleeding, you, you can't manage it. So Dennis was lumbered with a creature he didn't quite know, who was very beautiful and quite useless. And her father was, his name was Bolislaw Leshmian. And he, if you look in Wikipedia, you will find him. He is um, really the most unusual, poetic man of the last century. And he is in dictionaries, he is in, you, you, you learn about him at school. And he was a, a quite an extraordinary character. Gillian, another extraordinary family story. Thank you for sharing that. I'd like to talk about Blue Dress now. and I'd love to know the story behind that. Yes. Well, this was quite an important song for me because it's talking about my first adult love. And um, he was a well-known personality. And he'd asked to, to, to meet me, and he was full of questions. And then he stopped, uh, and he was staring at me. And after a while, well, this made me feel uncomfortable. And I tugged at the edge of my dress, hiding my knees. I was very self-conscious. And then suddenly, I had this eureka thing, and it was a line that came to me. And um, I said, an angel is passing through. And he woke up. What's this? He said. Well, um, when there's a long silence, there's a saying, an angel has passed through. And in French, it sounded rather poetic. It's only then I realized that. Also, I realized another thing. I realized I'd, I'd somehow fallen in love. But it was no, there was no way it was, it could go, and I was, I was, I was stuck, and I would love him for years, and he would, <laughs> he would never know. But I, I couldn't regret it. I know I did the right thing, and much, much later, when I met my my father, he explained something about mother, and he had been in a similar situation. So, and I loved him very much. Um, I was just sad that he wasn't there in my life because I think it, my life would have been probably, and that's a selfish thing to say, easier. Uh, but I was navigating on my own. I don't regret. And that's the most important thing. If you love, you sacrifice. Thank you, Gillian. Let's listen to Blue Dress. When he was all mine, and then he was all mine. 
Gillian, thank you so much for this first podcast. It's been absolutely fascinating. I feel like there is never ending array of stories of you and your family's <laughs> lives. My goodness, I just, the things you have seen and done, I cannot wait to speak to you again. <laughs> Good. Good. I'll try and be less verbose. I'll try and ask you a few questions. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to our next chat. However it goes, we're going to yeah. have fun and it's going to be fascinating. We'll play some more of your wonderful music. Gillian Hills, thank you again. Gillian Hills, A Life in Art, Film and Music was presented by me, Anna Smith, from the Girls on Film podcast. The programme was produced by Russ Williams and executive producers are Tony Byrne and Stuart Young. Copyright Gillian Hills, 2021.